0: Real quick, before we start the show, just wanted to let you guys know you can get the show two days early by joining our Patreon. Even for a buck, you can listen to the show two days early. Go to patreon.com slash analog talk, and we got a bunch of stuff over there. Check it out, and uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. Hey, you guys. Welcome back to another episode of Analog Talk, a film photography podcast. I'm your host, Tim. I'm Chris. And on today's show, we have Ryan Pfluger. Hey, Ryan. Hi, Hello. Ryan.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for for joining us. I'm a huge fan of your what yeah, you have same, going same on. Here, so, same here. Um, before we get into all that, do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and giving us a background how you got into photography?
2: Sure. My name is Ryan Fluger. I was born and raised in Flushing, Queens. Um, oh, cool, cool. Moved to the moved to the suburbs when I was like eight or nine, and then. My photo journey kind of started in a more unchosen path. Uh, I was originally going to school mm-hmm. for art history, um, oh, wow. and cool. after about two years, I realized I was tired of writing about dead white men. Um, <laughs> and <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I I took a, a photo course because it was part of my just like you know foundations doing a MFA, a, a BFA actually, and then. I really enjoyed it, and I was never really good making stuff with my hands, and it felt like photography was like this nice in-between. And I realized also the school that I was going to wasn't the most um, providing in education for actually doing (laughs) photography as a profession and kind of sped through the program and immediately applied to grad schools. And I got my MFA at uh, the School of Visual Arts. Um, And I was the youngest person that they had, at least at that point, admitted into the program. So I was 23 when I graduated. So I was 21 when I went into the program. And then from there, I realized that I couldn't uh, just make a living as a poor person, as an artist. Um, I I came from a pretty, you know, lower middle class family. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I put myself through college and put myself through grad school. And my mentor at the time while I was doing my master's was Kathy Ryan at the New York Times Magazine. And she kind of... Really ignited um, a passion in me to start doing commissioned work um, because also it ignited my bank account. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and the rest is kind of history. So I've been yeah. working, you know, as a I say, working photographer for about mm-hmm. you know fifteen years or so now, and also my own personal practice as well.
1: I mean that's I have, I have like so much to just because your work is, <laughs> is it's it's kind of like aligned with like I mean it's just it's like I'm lost for, I'm the last my last for words uh for it but uh, have you always been shooting film or did you kind of go through like the digital
2: No, I'm old enough that I was always shooting film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so oh, that's I was, great. Great. I mean, yeah, I I was taught in the dark room, you know, black and white and color and I didn't even have a digital camera for myself until way after grad school, um, for the most part. Still to this day, I'd say, you know, 90% of my work is on film.
1: That is incredible. Listeners have already heard my version of that story where in school, what's what we learned on, because that's all there was, basically. And then getting into the digital because everybody was like, it's the new thing. You have to, If you're going to work, you got to get the it's digital. It's the
3: future. Yeah,
1: it's the future. So <laughs> yeah. I, I like really admire that you that you were able to stick with it. Do you think it's mostly because it lends itself to your style more or do you think it, it was just what you were comfortable with and that's what you kind of wanted to stay with?
2: I, I think it's a little of both. I think for me, it's <laughs> very much um, part of my practice. I, you know, I shoot, VSA is just shoot mostly medium format. I started on 4 by mm-hmm. 5 Switch to something that was more accessible for me and more, you know, cost efficient while I was in grad school. And for, you know, I'm a really slow and silent photographer. So mm. film has always been part of that process for me. Um, mm. I shoot completely differently when I shoot digitally. I, I think of it just yeah. as a different medium you know, I'm not opposed to it. I just, it's yeah. not, aesthetically, it's not the same for me.
1: I, I almost feel like it's almost hard not to shoot differently with, with digital because you're just so, it's so easy to like run and gun around a set versus yeah. being intentional. How, do you think the people you photograph appreciate that, that you go slower? Like talk us through like a typical shoot.
2: I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the first, like the fir- the first thing that people actually say to me when they're actually starting that conversation is like oh you are shooting film that's so- I haven't mm-hmm. done that in so long yeah 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 you know and it, i i think that it it also helps put people at ease a bit more of like mm. knowing the competence of like what my skills are right and it also it just changes the dynamic you know with a bigger camera it allows it allows people to feel like they also need to be like more still, and my work is very mm. still. So it like mm. it, it just it it totally informs the way you communicate with the subject. You know, I, I I personally don't use like multiple backs because I like that kind of breathing room of me wow. changing film and people oh, actually okay. seeing what the process is, um, because it allows for there to be some breath between yeah. photographs instead of just like you know. Right, right, it. right. Man, that's, that's so
0: something cool. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't thought of that because, man, when you are firing off like a digital, like there, there's no break. There's no reason. I mean, unless your battery dies. But how often do we change batteries in a digital? Okay. You know what I mean? Like it's it's that's wild. I didn't even think of that and to bring them with that where you're like, all right, we got to change the role. And they're just like, what are you shooting now? Or something, you know what (laughs) I mean? Like it's, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool way to.
2: And then like my favorite thing is also people being like, how is it looking? And I'm like, well, I know it looks good, but I can't, uh, I can't I can't tell you or show you because it's on film, but you know, it's still, you know, because of where we are in present society people like it, like that process doesn't even like, Necessarily mm-hmm. yeah. infiltrate properly, where they're like, Oh, you're shooting film, but how is it looking? And it's like, Well, yeah, oh,
1: yeah, you'll, yeah. You'll,
2: you'll, I'll know in a day. I can't tell you right yeah. now.
1: Do you find this is something I ask a lot of guests we have on the show who do do your kind of work Be, because they're, they're, you know, a lot of digital is what is sort of like what clients prefer because they can get that immediate. You know, I, I did a shoot where we were pausing so the art directors could like go through and like say, like, Okay, these are great, let's move on. Do you find Do you get pushback in that or do people know this is what you do so they don't – do you Uh, ever have to like plead your case for film essentially?
2: When it comes to commercial work, yes. Um, Yeah. When it comes to editorial, no. No one ever forces me to shoot digitally. Um, That's great. But with commercial work, I'd say that's the only thing that I do shoot digitally and even then I'll try to do some pushback of like, I'll shoot digital on a monitor for you to see it, but I'm going to shoot film for like ah. what the final product is going to be. Oh, um, great. so it just puts them at ease and it allows me because I'm like, you're, you're having these you know, references for me that aesthetically I'm not gonna match digitally. They'll look similar, but it's like if you want this specific thing, it needs to be this specific thing.
0: Man, that's where uh where Polaroids would be coming in handy these days. I wish yeah. I wish they yeah. still made the peel apart film. I mean <laughs> come on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's what I did back in the day, huh? I know. know. You can see it. Here you go.
2: I just say that my digital camera is my Polaroid now. I'm just like, you want to see it here? I'll take some digital shots. You can see kind of what it's looking like and, you know, take it at face value and let's actually let me photograph how I want to
0: yeah I feel like that's a good tip too for people that want to you know shoot more film on on projects like that if you do because like I always like to test my lighting if I'm doing something like that just making sure the exposure is good you know and and I mean I'm By far, that's that's the furthest thing I ever do or jobs like that. But when I would, you know, it would it would always work out just to do like a strobe test and to make sure that everything looked okay. And
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's I I came from shooting Polaroids all the time um, for jobs and stuff and for my own work. And so it's just good for me for reference of just like, okay, this is what this looks like. Let me, you know, move stuff around before I get into my groove.
3: Mm.
1: I'm very excited for your book. Um, congratulations on Thank that, you. by the way.
2: Mm. Thank you.
1: Can you tell our listeners what that is and when it's coming and how you' like what brought it you know out of you and all that stuff? We'd love to hear it.
2: yeah, it's um you know, I've wanted to do a monograph for a really long time and I didn't want it to be just a like anthology of my work. Um, mm. and I had been thinking about this body of work for about a decade and just you know, with my own work schedule and actual free time, I just didn't have it to be able to actually put the energy into making the work. Mm. Um, and COVID hit and I was yeah. like, okay, now's the time. Cause I knew that I wasn't going to be working and it, it took me about like three or four months to really kind of figure out how I was going to go about doing it. And uh, I, so the the book is called Holding Space, and it is a – it took me about 16 months, and it's 100 wow. interracial queer couples throughout the U.S. Oh, damn. Yeah. So the, the body of work started with people that were really close to me that were in my kind of immediate circle um, because I wanted to just see how it worked because I knew that the majority of the work was going to be with strangers – Um, And also wanted to get insight from the couples themselves of how they felt about, you know, a queer, a queer person that is, you know, very white um, doing Mm -hmm. a project that's about intersectionality. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, it was something that I felt was missing from photography and I didn't know that I didn't know if this was the right thing for it to help to facilitate it. And then after working with about three or four couples I realized that this was this was the right path for me and yeah so then I wanted it to be a body of work where it was people that solely reached out to me uh, I was just gonna ask yeah so all of the couples with the exception of about 10 um, are people that reached out to me that I never met before uh. Wow very cool. I was gonna say, and I also knew that I, uh, you know, starting it knew that it was like a book project. Um, and also that I knew that it wasn't going to just be photography and figuring out what, you know, that, how that was going to live as a final body of work, um, took a while, Mm. but it ended, I, I wanted to make sure that all of the couples had kind of control of their narrative. Cause I feel like that's often missing from photography, especially photojournalism and, you know, photographers that work in more anthropological ways, um, mm-hmm. that it often becomes a photographer statement and not a subject statement. And so I wanted to really make sure that I was removing myself as much as possible as, you know, as the the voice of these people, I just want it to be mm. kind of like a facilitator more than anything. Mm. Mm. Um, so all of the text in the book is all first person accounts. Um, and it's not, it's not like interview style or anything. I just yeah. gave them prompts and things that I learned from spending time with them as like kind of starting points, but allowed them to talk about whatever it was that they felt was appropriate for like a public audience.
0: I can't yeah. wait. That sounds so like, my heart, I don't know if it's ready for that yet. <laughs> it's,
2: a, it's a very, it, you know, I keep, I, because I'm in the starts of doing press for it, which is
3: mm-hmm.
2: an interesting journey um, because this is like a hybrid book. And the whole kind of point of it was that it was financially accessible as a monograph. So it's only $30, mm. but oh, it is, wow. by, awesome. you know, a, it's by a large publisher. So it's mass marketed. Um, you can get it anywhere, which is often not the case with photo books. And yeah. the the fact that there is so much text, it people think when you say like, oh, the photographer's putting out a book that like it's mm-hmm. just going to be photographs. It has as many words as a novel. So... It's, it's a book. It's a book that you need. to yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, most of the people that did blurbs for it or got pre-pressed copies of it, you know, it took them like four or five hours to read it.
1: But I love that. It's like a, you know, an experience, you know, it's not just like, oh, you flip through like, oh, look how beautiful everybody is. Wow. But to like, here, every I'm assuming everybody's personal story is going to be just you know even and it's better.
2: A, it, it's a juxtaposition because also the the couples I, I like to say collaborators instead of subjects. Um, mm-hmm. They they all got like I didn't do releases for the reason that anyone that that broke up after the fact that they didn't have to be involved with the book that I did that they all had the final say and what images were used. So the end product is like me very removed from it. Right. You know, it's not necessarily the images that I would have chosen. I love that. And the text often is a very interesting juxtaposition where especially there's a lot of couples in the book that broke up during the process of me making it Mm. that decided to stay within the body of work. So you have these really, you know, emotionally hard stories to read of why people broke up and why, you know, what affects queer people within, you know, public and private places and how that differs with a relationship and how it affects it over time. And so, you know, you're seeing these photographs of like really loving, intimate moments and then texts that's like, we were together for five years and I realized I couldn't be with a white person. And Uh so it's like really, it's those nuanced conversations that's often missing from photography. And I wanted, and also just like the general, (laughs) general broader conversation that the world has. And Uh I wanted to make sure that that was present because I think it's very important for like the queer experience and especially when it comes to relationships and how we have to kind of build our own foundations of what relationships look like. Um, And then when you come from different marginalized backgrounds, how different that can look for the individuals and when you're trying to come together as a loving couple, that there's a lot of stuff under the surface that you can't see in image making. And I wanted to make sure that that was part of the story that I was telling.
0: Wow. That sounds so good. Yeah. So good.
2: You know, I have to say it's pretty fucking great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it.
0: I mean, Especially coming from this world of photography where, you know, like you said, like a book comes out, there's nothing about the people, really. You might get their age or what state it was shot yeah. in or something like that. Maybe a little blip in the back about it. But just to, to be focused kind of on the story as well is so... Yeah. I I love that. I love it.
2: I think that the kind of like jumping point of how I wanted it to be very different was thinking of photography books that have become part of kind of like the broad diaspora of photography of like something like Humans of New York. Mm -hmm. It it felt very controlling from the photographer's point of view of making sure Mm -hmm. to get stories that would elicit an emotional response that were a little bit utilizing people for your own means. And I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to make sure that the control was still in the people that I was photographing's hands. And I also didn't want it to be trauma porn and i wanted right, it to be yeah. something that was really authentic and honest and sometimes that's really joyful and sometimes that's not and mm. that's like the beauty of of love in general is that it's not it's not great all the time and right. understanding how you work through that and then creating imagery that elicits that is a, an interesting process especially yeah. with strangers being like please yeah you know show that you love each other and are, are in the privacy of whether it's your own home or you know because it was in covid a lot of it was outdoors for about the first year that i was doing mm-hmm. it so it was like come to this secluded national park or state park and meet me here and You know, coming from a stranger, that's a yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's a little interesting. You know, meet me in the woods, (laughs) and I'm going to take some photographs. Yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: (laughs) So I think that it also says a lot about like how my process works. In order to make people comfortable, because it's not like I'm like walking down the street asking people if I can make photographs of them. It's a very planned thing, but I'm also asking a lot of the people that i'm photographing and i'm all asking them to give a lot to me in their openness yeah. um so it's creating a space that allows that to happen so there's a lot of talking that happens and not necessarily a ton of photographing that happens
1: yeah do you plan on doing like a show for this
2: that's the that's the eventual hope is to you know, I think because I I walk that line between working photographer and artist and I always mm-hmm. have kind of kind of like photographers of the past. Um and I yeah. think that, you know, as contemporary art world became more of a capitalist structure that, you know, you have to differentiate yourself. Like I'm an artist. I don't do things for other people. And it's like mm-hmm. I I enjoy the process of collaborating with people that hire me and doing things that are outside of what my normal comfort zone is mm. but when it comes down to it it's like I'm an artist so that's it, it's a hard thing to kind of grapple with sometimes when people associate you as someone that does commissions but also yeah. has a very substantial amount of personal work cuz not all working photographers make work for themselves and so yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you're right you
2: know, it's a, the path that I chose makes it a little bit more complicated sometimes. Mm.
0: Man. So with this project is, you know, the book and the, if you do a show and all that stuff, is that kind of the end for this? Or do you see this kind of being like a, like you might have a part I'm two dying. in you yeah. or, you know, it might be kind of like a series that you do down the road or something like that.
2: I already am kind of like workshopping for myself kind of more than I, to me, this book is like chapter one
0: Okay, um, yeah. right. of a
2: very kind of, new way of working for myself. Um, You know, it won't be the exact same subject matter, but it will be in the vein of intersectionality and clearness and kind of how that I'm very interested in just like Americana in general. Yeah. And I feel like that kind of documentation within queer culture is very much relegated to our own community and not to kind of a broader audience. And that's the point of this book was to make... It accessible to a broader audience for these kind of stories to be read and seen by people that are in middle America that don't normally have access to this kind of stuff outside the internet and to Mm -hmm. be able to just walk into your local bookstore and see something that is really full of what a queer life is. Like mm. that to me is something that I feel I'm very grateful for my publisher and for allowing it that it can be something that is as accessible as it is.
1: What was the experience like of of shopping it around? Did you you know, was that a hard thing? Was it
2: Um it was surprisingly the opposite. Um I think oh, because of when great. I was making this Um, because it was the beginning of COVID and I was like pretty vocal on the internet, just about the the issues with the photography Mm -hmm. industry and kind of, I I was giving some pretty heavy critiques on like why, you know, so many freelancers were having a hard time during COVID and that there wasn't any safety blankets and kind of what that's like for, you know, people like me that are quote unquote, considered successful and financially like it was a really difficult time for me right and so i think it kind of brought more attention to the work that i was making during covid um so i had multiple publishers approach me at the time um and i just really loved my editor she really got my work and like the history Mm -hmm. of my work and how i kind of got to this place and was able to kind of meet all of the things that i you know i still wanted it to be a glossy photo book i still wanted it but i wanted it to be for people that are of lower social economic backgrounds that could afford it but that the quality was going to be the same and you know they lined all of that up for me and it ended up you know Now seeing the final, final book, I'm, I'm really happy that it's like, it's a size that people can put in their bags, that it's not relegated to being a coffee table book. So it's all of those things that were like very much at the forefront of my mind. And Princeton Architectural Press, um, you know, during COVID, they also were going through some changes. My editor Mm -hmm. just started working there. Um, and she had previously been at the bigger art Book publishers, and was brought on to kind of change things up a little bit at the publisher. And I was one of the first kind of books that she signed on to.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that you can just you can pre-order it. Like at I'm Barnes and Noble's where yeah. I'm getting it. Like yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is so great. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like I said, congratulations, Ryan. This is. Thank you. It's- yeah Yeah, it's huge I get goosebumps just thinking about it so
0: and the fact that you you know like you said like you're you're keeping it affordable because it's so easy to mark these things up and make it Mm -hmm. so insane because there's so many books I'd buy all the time and I'm just like damn $85 like come on like it's killing me but just the fact that this is such an important story to tell (laughs) along with like you know it being accessible to I mean 30 bucks everybody's that's like three trips to Starbucks you know what I mean so it's (laughs) yeah you know and that's
2: that's always the problem that I've had with photo books is that the edition sizes are usually very small um, Mm -hmm. because they have to be and then the more mass marketed ones are from being upfront, like very famous, very financially successful photographers. And then you have books that are selling for, you know, like Annie Leibowitz's new book is selling for a hundred dollars. Stephen Klein's new book is selling for $250 where it's like, an art student can't buy that. Someone that lives, you know, in Ohio in a small town can't buy that, but they may love photography and they may love art. And it's like the idea that, you know, I'm not making any money off of this. It's like, I'd have to sell, right. you know, sell 100,000 books to even recoup the cost that it costs me to make this. Um, so, but that was important to me is like, I think that's what's important with just like community building as a, yep. as an artist, I feel like that's my job. Um, and I take that really seriously. Um, so I wanted to make sure that like for my first monograph, that that was very apparent.
0: Well, we thank you. We thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> Kind of going back to you, you know, your professional work and being the artist. Do you think that's why I never get into professional work is because I just feel like the burnout of making it like my job would kind of take away from the art, do you ever have that conflict and battle inside of you of where it's like, you know, oh, I'm doing this for my my job. And then when you're finally ready to go out and shoot stuff, are you just like, damn, I have to go shoot again? Or how do you balance that?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, every month I feel that way. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, for, for a long time, you know, because I was really poor i like couldn't figure Mm -hmm. out if i was going to be able to pay my rent each month you know i was i'm i didn't i didn't move to california until about four and a half years ago um Mm -hmm. but you know living in new york it was like i was moving to smaller and smaller apartments Mm -hmm. that were costing more and more money and so i i ended up concentrating all my time on commissions because it was the way that i was able to have money that was that I could rely on
0: yeah yeah
2: and I wanted to make sure that I made a name for myself that that would always kind of exist for me especially as a backup so it may have taken like a decade for me to be like financially comfortable um and then it just happened that a pandemic happened when I was just in the place of like, oh, I'm starting to go back to really making work for myself. Mm. And, you know, for the, the few years prior to uh, me moving out to California, I I was getting that burnout really hard. And so I would take like six to seven weeks off and I would drive cross country and I would just make work. And oh. that was like my way uh-huh. of resetting myself. Yeah, and, yeah. But i knew that i just still didn't have the the time to really invest in this is a body of work this is what this is that my commission work still became priority mm-hmm. and i think that i just needed a big shift like a pandemic to make it that yeah. i i really prioritized self and like what my voice was over jobs that weren't happening anyway and so now i i am i'm able to kind of bring that same mindset into my commissioned work where it's like things that i may have said yes to a few years ago mm. i don't anymore i need to be really excited about either the project or the subject or the person that i'm working for it needs to be really financially motivating like i have a lot of right. it's a lot of a lot of factors to get through to yes now where it was like wow. oh, okay it's like one or two that i'm like i'm into the person i'm photographing but it's like not really any money and like where i now i just say no to stuff like that
1: Isn't it crazy i yeah the, how many times i've been like oh we want to hire you but just so you know there's no budget it's like <laughs>
2: Well yeah. you're not hire you're not hiring then you're not hiring. Yeah it's, <laughs> it's like it's not supposed to
1: like it's like yeah. what is that like, okay, what? <laughs> yeah.
2: I think also because, you know, of social media and the internet, there's become this mindset that there's, there's always someone that's going to be able to do it for cheaper mm-hmm. and faster. Yep. Right. And because we have so much more access to, like, options – instead mm-hmm. of like really having to navigate creating relationships with people that would be commissioning you which is like the old timey way of going about things yeah where it's like yeah, yeah you know i can get an email from someone now that i've never spoken to ever yeah being, wanting to commission me and you know 15 years ago that would never happen mm-hmm. you know so right. it was just mm-hmm. it, it's it's me understanding that me saying no to something doesn't mean that I'm losing out on anything. It's me stepping away from something, realizing this is not what's best for me right
1: now. Ryan, that is, <laughs> I'm kind of in that same same place in in what I do too. I just became a mom uh, seven months ago. Oh, congrats! Thank you. So that changes. I'm not going to spend my time twelve hours on set. For no month. like you, like mm-hmm. you have to make it worth my while now. Mm. If I'm gonna, you know, get a babysitter or, or just even be away from him for that long, so I think it takes a while to get there. You know, when we're young and hungry, we're like, well, I'll take it, I'll do it. You know, and and some of these jobs I was doing, they were rough, they were long days. You know, in the cold, I was doing on set photography, and to get 200 bucks <laughs> it was like insane. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, so. Yeah, I, I'm definitely I definitely hear you and feel that when when you talk about prioritizing just your life. Yeah, it's
2: especially I mean especially as a female photographer, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I have I'm almost forty and most of you know my Same. photography Same. photography friends are kind of in that age range that are having kids where they're like not comfortable, you know, having their pregnancy known on social media because they don't want to not be hired you know and it's like it's all of those things of like where you would do you start you know i have you know a few friends that have you know one or two younger kids like toddlers where they're like i just am i'm burnt down in the way where that stuff just just doesn't interest me anymore Mm -hmm. because i have to prioritize what makes me feel good? What is good for my family? What is where I can't put myself in situations anymore that I would have maybe five years ago, because it's not worth it. And it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it it doesn't, it doesn't help anyone's career.
1: When when you were saying a lot of your friends, it kind of makes me feel a little bit, not better, but that I, that insecurity that I had of not putting my pregnancy out because I knew maybe I wouldn't get hired it's kind of insane to even say it out loud you know what i mean
2: but it's just factually true yeah it's just factually <laughs> like, I, I think that you know uh, something that i've always kind of prided myself on because i you know i couldn't hide the fact that i was queer you know mm-hmm. i i've always made work that referenced that in some way right and you know that can lead to people not hiring you. And Uh it does lead to people not hiring you. I think that any marginalized person knows that. Mm -hmm. And that is not exclusive to whether it's like your race or your sexuality or your identity. It also is whether you're just a a man or a woman. And it's a lot of stuff that is unsaid within our industry that people don't like to talk about because there's this fear of... (laughs) backlash or not being hired or the word of mouth of like oh this person is just someone that complains all the time that's like my thing is always Mm -hmm. i only say things that are factual to the industry right because it's my lived-in experience right so if anyone has issue with that they probably need to reevaluate themselves because it's something that they're not thinking about And when I say, oh, no, like being queer has been a huge hindrance to my professional career. While the best thing that about my work and how I create, it's like those two things (laughs) are not mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. and they live together and it's figuring out how to navigate that. Mm. And by being a vocal person, I at least can go to sleep at night knowing that I am authentically being me in a way that is not aggressive towards other people, but is at least letting people know this is what I face Mm -hmm. as a photographer that you don't have to. And I think that those conversations are really important. And because there isn't like some watering hole where all photographers can just meet and be like, okay, let's like lay the shit out here. Right. It makes it where you do have those feelings of like, oh, I don't. Now, I don't feel alone mm-hmm. knowing that, like, someone that maybe I deem is more successful than me is feeling the exact same things or has experienced the same exact things. And, you know, again, it goes back to that community building because I think that, like, the idea of community and the photo community is actually a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, that. There's such a a fear of competition and Mm -hmm. someone taking something away from you or someone using your ideas that we're all so secluded in these like very isolating worlds that you know we're not able to be like oh like that producer that I worked with was like really aggressive towards me mm-hmm. and like I, I think that that should be known to other mm-hmm. people and like where it's like this isn't just a personality conflict like the professionalism of this person is not okay right. or I felt like I was being stereotyped and right. I felt like I was being relegated to just being a queer person instead of you're a great photographer that also happens to be queer right. it's like those are two very different things and i think just talking about them is like the first step but you know it's it's a hard thing when everything is so separate and everyone you know works in their own little worlds to make it like okay what are the changes that we can make as a whole so i think that you know at least right now the solution is like oh okay like you're not alone being Mm. you know a new mom right not wanting to take jobs, because it's just not going to make you feel good, and it's right. not worth it. And what's more worth it is spending time at home with your family, right. and that does not take anything away from your work yeah Man.
1: thanks ryan i'm I'm getting a little teary
0: <laughs> yeah. So, like looking back, let's go back like ten years ago. Like, how different are things now than it than it used to be? I mean, I feel like even from my point of view of looking at the world, it's funny. I was watching a documentary on Woodstock '94, and the band Blind Melon was playing, and he had a dress on, and it was like people <laughs> were fucking appalled over this dress and i'm like holy shit that's right this world is it used to be so you didn't hear anything about stuff that wasn't just the heterosexual you know this and that and that i mean are how do you feel now like it being 2022
2: um it's a it's a difficult question to answer because i don't i i think that I think that people are more aware, Mm. but I don't think people have really made big changes in their own lives or how they treat people or how they even associate things with certain, you know, I think the perfect example is George Floyd and black lives matter. And if you look at magazines pretty much from June of 2020, till about the summer of 2021. It was mostly Black photographers that had been so hungry and fighting to get even meetings or answers from people yeah. that all of a sudden were photographing covers of magazines yeah. Yeah. From, for people that ignored them for five years. Right. And with also Black subjects on the covers. And the problem with all of that is, is that... Editors kind of treated that moment in time as how they've always treated things where it's like we're mm-hmm. going to use the same five to eight people because there's only five or 10 really exceptional photographers that can actually do this stuff, which is not true nope. um, <laughs> at all. Yeah, And we're going to do the same thing that we have done with cis, straight, white dudes for the history of our publication. And you look now and you can start seeing things shifting back to business as fucking usual.
0: Yeah, that's what I was worried about.
2: You know, the same thing happened, you know, when all of a sudden it was like there was all these violent, well, I say publicly known violent acts against Asian people. All of a sudden, we were having Asian awareness within photography. We were having more stories about it. Fast forward a year later, where are those stories? And so I I take everything that kind of happens with a grain of salt where, you know, even just in just like the public realm of culture of like you know it's like Billy Eichner's uh, kind of press run for his movie Bros and it's like this big thing of like the first rom-com it's all gay lesbian queer people and all the roles and blah 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 and it's like people are like kind of like oh like I'm kind of tired of hearing about it yada yada and it's like I get the momentum behind it because it hasn't existed before right so it's like but does that in order if it's successful, does that still mean that we're going to have to do this all over again mm. for you to want to make these movies mm. right and I think that infiltrates everything within the culture where it's like if we're if if it's not consistent for decades upon decades, you can't even have the conversation of like how are things now compared to ten years yeah, ago because. Yeah. Honestly, nothing has changed significantly for a continued period of time to actually appropriately answer that question. Mm. I can still go places in America and get out of my car when I'm driving cross-country and go to myself, am I safe here? Mm. Yeah. And that just just having to have that conversation with yourself as someone like me who likes going into places that I haven't been before and having to know for myself, am I going to just be safe to be in this place when I don't have to think about that anymore is when I can have a conversation of whether things have changed.
0: This world. (laughs) Shit.
2: Yeah. (laughs) You know, I just I just did a workshop at the Anderson Ranch, which is a fucking amazing place in Colorado. And my class was originally called Intimacy in Photography. And after the first day, I went to my class. I was like, actually, this really should be called Ethics and Philosophy in Photography. Mm. I happened because it was people that were signing up for a class with me. It happened to be a really diverse range of people, and most of the conversation was about. Depending on what your identity is, what kind of access you have to places, what kind of access you have to communities. Yeah. And it usually comes down to a straight white man can go wherever the hell he wants, photograph whoever he wants, become successful off of it. Yep. And no one bats an eye, right. except for the marginalized people that are like, well, What the fuck? Why are you coming into my community mm-hmm. and doing this? And it's right. like, What we would do field trips and like we went to a rodeo and I was like, you know, for the black and brown people that were in my class and also in the the majority of my class was also queer. And it was like, I want you to understand what it feels like to be in the space that you wouldn't normally go to and really reckon with those feelings to understand, like, a lot of times... It has nothing to do with the photographer's work. It has to do with the access to the things that they want to make work of and mm. it not being accessible or it not being a safe space, which is why we see bodies of work from photographers that are not from those communities because they don't have it's 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 a very mm-hmm. complicated place to have those conversations but at the same time it's really easy <laughs> it's like yeah. Yeah. it could be so much easier than what it is right and i think just kind of br- highlighting those differences of just just the simplest thing as as access it changes the way that we actually historically look at photography and i think that that's really important especially people that are you know analog photographers that are film photographers that really spend time with their practice in that way whether it's in the dark room or you know that having the access to places it's so important.
0: 100%. I agree. And it's always good to hear. Thanks thank you for everything you were saying. It just feels mm-hmm. so good to hear because being a straight white male, like you said, I mean, all that stuff, like just when the Black Lives Matter movement was at its height and just how participating everyone was in like, you know, building up that community and, and doing all this stuff. And then, you know, everything kind of simmers down after a while, like the the dust kind of settles in those times. And and it's so easy to just go back to your your normal, you know, like you said, yeah. I, I never have that fear of, am I going to be safe here? walking down this alleyway, you know, and mm-hmm. I, it's, I know, like I'm totally fine. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And uh, even, even mm. for me in places that I am normally comfortable because I do a lot of public photographing yeah. in places yeah. where it's like, there's people walking by and it's like a lot of times, like I am in the back of my head of like, are people looking at the way that I am dressed or the way that I present right. myself? Yeah. It's like, I am non-binary. It's like, sometimes I'm more in masks than others. Mm-hmm. And it's like the idea of not only am I safe, but is the person that I'm photographing feeling safe and comfortable? It's like the fact that I have to have those, th- that thought process while I'm making work sucks. True. And I think that, you know, it's not to say also like I don't want to see work by like straight white dudes. <laughs> like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. totally get that. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that, you know, am I exhausted and tired of it at times? Yes. But it also doesn't, I, 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 always equated as like me having more of a voice right now does not take anything away from your voice Mm -hmm. ever it's just a matter of taking more time to listen than to speak and a lot of people are not comfortable with doing that because Mm -hmm. it's like if you let what I'm saying, sit with you for a while, it's like, then come back to me. And then we can have like the real, real conversation of like, what those feelings are. And also how that informs the work that you make in the future. Because it's like, even just I know my words are going to inform people for my own community. But they're also going to inform people outside of it of being like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't go into this place and make work here. Mm -hmm. Because this Mm -hmm. is not the place for my voice right now. Right. Maybe in 50 years it is. But right now, let me give space to allow people to tell their own stories because there's exceptional photographers of every background and most of them don't get a single minute of time.
0: Yeah. Wow. I remember when, um, I, I forget who I was watching or who was, it was like a video or a documentary or something about Uh, it was an ex-drug addict and he was documenting Mm. his old kind of stomping grounds. And he was explaining how, you know, these people go into these areas for the, you know, the gimmick, the cheap shot of getting these people, the homeless people or the drug addicts looking in their worst, because of course it's going to get shock and awe and views and clicks. But it's like, if you don't belong there, that's, you don't belong there to tell that story. That's not your it, I just feel like it's I remember when I was getting into documentary style photography and trying to tell a story through my work and I took a couple shots of people sleeping on park benches with a liquor bottle yeah. next to them and I was like, "Oh, I can't wait to share this. People are going to love this." And then looking at it later being like, "Wow, I'm such a dickhead. Like that's just yeah. not <laughs> not cool." Like I don't know
2: i i i I think it again it comes down to like a lot of conversation has not been had necessarily about intent, mm. um you know, especially because you know photography is the one medium where it's like it's real life, yeah, it's right. real life a lot of the times, and we forget that you know how someone's image is made and then seen how that's going it's like just like all the true crime kind of like Mm. real real life uh, you know series that have been very much in the culture recently where it's like we're not thinking about how that affects those actual real people that are still alive seeing themselves depicted by someone else that probably never even met them had a yep. conversation right. with them and like what that does to someone's psyche and it's like the same thing happens within photography where it's like i think a lot of like historically where it's like you have someone like nan golden who is really invested within it was her friends it was the people that right. she was existing yep. with it was her world where it's like it what it, it wasn't utilizing people in any way it was like this is just what my experience is and i think that those conversations need to happen more where it's like okay like you can make beautiful photographs but it's like what's your intent why are you right. photographing this community and why is it that your voice is the one that's important to tell that story Yeah, right. because i think that that's the question we really need to ask it's like am i the person that needs to be telling this or mm-hmm. is there someone that's better suited that also has better experience knowing this, that should be telling it instead. Mm, right. Shit. And, you know, to bring it back to my work, a lot of people have asked like withholding space, like, have you been in, are, are you in an interracial couple mm. now? And my response is I have been, I have lived an experience. What my present experience is, is none of your business. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I, w- I would never have been navigating these really difficult conversations if I didn't, have them with myself and with my own partners and my own friends, where it's like, this is something that is very complicated. And it's not a, you know, I'm advocating for interracial couples. It's actually the opposite. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing light to what it means to love someone that does not have the same experience as you do in a very visceral way it's not it's much different than like oh we come from you know he had a little bit more wealth and like had a little bit more access to college it's like we're talking about night and day experiences right. but loving each other and wanting to exist together both in private and public and what that means cuz that's a very different conversation mm. totally
0: dude i can't wait for this book i'm stoked I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's going to be a good one
2: one of the
1: things i saw on your instagram we kind of touched on a little bit the industry notes section that you had it kind of really resonated some with me some of the me. highlights
2: <laughs> yeah <the> highlights <laughs> so, yeah.
1: of you know you 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 speak about you know not getting a fair shot or like getting getting to you basically kind of what we talked about already, but I, my, my point is like, could you, do you have any advice for somebody who's just starting out?
2: Don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, you know, it, I, I, I would, my biggest advice is find peers immediately that can, that can be your support system mm-hmm. because trying to do it on your own never will work. And also, You can never trust anyone that is commissioning you to commission you a year later or two years later. I -hmm. think that's the you know the biggest lesson that I had to learn over time was that like even though I facilitated kind of relationships that lasted for five or six years that I thought were really great, but then like as soon as I moved across the country, it was like crickets Mm -hmm. and I didn't hear anything and. it's really understanding that there's an ebb and flow constantly, kind of no matter where you're at in your career, especially, you know, there actually the further you get in your career, sometimes the more difficult it gets because it becomes less and less people that you're necessarily competing with. But the opportunities are not as much because it's like you're up for bigger and bigger jobs and those aren't as prevalent as like, oh, this is a small, you know, one page editorial. We have. You know, four hundred dollars for the day, all inclusive. Go figure it out.
1: Right.
3: And
2: you know, someone that's just starting out is like, yeah, I'm going to take that. Like, that's exciting. Yeah. And it's like me. I'm like, that doesn't even cover my costs. So right, no, right, right. And so it's like people won't approach me for those kind of jobs anymore. So it's like for someone starting out, I think that you really need to create other peers that are in this on the same playing field as you to really form bonds with, and then also mentors people that have been maybe two or three years kind of ahead of them in their career mm. maybe not someone that's been doing it for 20 25 years mm-hmm. because they don't have the same it's like the the while well, the industry has stayed the same for the most part yeah the changes are you know it's just like me where it's like I started out where it was like I had in person meetings I brought my portfolio to editors I don't do that anymore right. and no one really does that anymore and so it's like a lot of the stuff that I did starting out, I can't give that advice to people anymore. So it's like finding the people that have had a little bit of success that are maybe a few years older than you and that are willing, you know, I, I try to be as mentory as possible whenever someone reaches out. But also if I know that I am not the right fit for someone, I very much am like, this is the advice I can give you. But I think that like what you're looking for, whether it's assisting or I don't think that you're going to get the experience that you want from me. Mm. And so I, I'm going to help you find someone else that will maybe give you that Um. or make suggestions, but like I'm letting you, I'm not that person. And it's not to say that I don't want to help you out. It's just, everyone's different. And I think that it's like finding the people that have had similar experiences to you or will have similar experiences to you. Again, not treating all photographers as if they're the same thing. It's like some people are very happy photographing weddings and it's like, I can't give you advice on that, but I can direct you to like people that maybe can um, because I don't know what that is like. Um, So I think that's the best advice is really, it's like, from day one making sure that you have a support system um yeah. because in industry where it's like you don't have hr <laughs> you don't one K, yeah, yeah. it's like right. you don't have health insurance it's like mm-hmm. it needs to have people that you know that you can rely on yeah that's
0: that. yeah that's great that's- advice we'll be right back with the listener question for ryan right after this message from our sponsor Just wanted to pop in quick and let you guys know about our Patreon-only Develop and Hang Nights. Now, we've done a bunch of these already. They're a ton of fun. We talk shop. We develop some film. We laugh. We also try to get former guests for these as well. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, head over to patreon.com slash analog talk. Patreon is the best way to support the show. Thanks, guys.
1: All right, everybody. So this is the part of the show where we take a break and take a question from one of our listeners. This week's question comes from former guest Sarah Stellino, and she asks, what are some techniques you use to promote intimacy between two people that you're photographing together? That is a great question.
2: It is a great question. And it's also it's a having said earlier, having just taught a week-long workshop on intimacy Um, (laughs) and the fact that i started it off with saying you can't teach how (laughs) to teach intimacy to other photographers um the biggest technique that i've always used is to have zero expectations Mm. i think that going into something requiring something of someone um especially if it's someone that you haven't met it automatically um leads to an imbalanced power dynamic and i think that photography is in general an imbalanced power dynamic Mm -hmm. and it's figuring out how to kind of regulate that for yourself into making it feel like a give and take. And I think that's always been my the way that I walk into things is these are ideas that I have. These are things that I was thinking about when we started talking about doing a session together. You don't have to do any of this. This is just where mm-hmm. my brain is at. Let's see how we connect with each other before we start asking things of each other. Um, oh. I think that, mm, you know, yeah. we have... Photography is such a, like, powerful form in the arts that where it's like you, you're capturing someone's image. And especially when you're wanting something that is, quote-unquote, intimate, um, you know, that's asking a lot of someone. And right. so I think coming into any space with the person that you're collaborating with, with them knowing that nothing that they do is wrong and that whatever mm. they're open to is the right thing because it's the right thing for them. And so that should be the right thing for you. Mm. And I think that, you know, as photographers, we're, we're so capable of changing things on the fly it's like it's how we see the the world it's like i i go into one situation thinking it's going to be something and then i get there and i'm like the space is not what i thought it was let me let me reconfigure to still make this feel like me and i think that that mindset goes into anything so it's like if you're making work that's about intimacy you're like, oh, I was expecting, you know, this person to be nude and doing this thing under here. And it's like, well, maybe it's maybe it's just actually an implication of something, and you're not actually showing it. And you're mm. still describing in the feeling of intimacy. It's like there's so and it also is solely based on how the photographer works it's like wh- whether you're a photographer that talks a lot whether you're a, ph- right. a photographer that's very much about directing things or whether you just in- exist in a space with someone and you don't take many photographs like i do you know it, it it's solely dependent on what your own workflow is but also always being conscious of the person you're photographs comfortability and also checking in with them being like I know you said you were okay with this, but like now after, you know, photographing with me for a bit, I wanna still make sure that you are mm. okay. And I think just giving people those check-ins and those reference points of like, you know what my work looks like, you know the range that it can go to. And we don't need to go from point A to point B in ten seconds. It's like mm. we can we can work to that if that means me coming back or us right. working together a few times until you feel like it's a safe space with me, because you're not someone that normally does something like this. Um, you know, and then also if you're like a photo journalist or a documentarian or someone that is kind of existing in spaces for a while, it's like you break that fourth wall and make sure that you are doing check ins that you're not mm-hmm. just a fly on the wall because it's like, You could be documenting moments that someone isn't comfortable with. And while you may be depicting quote-unquote intimacy, it's not the kind of intimacy that the person your photograph wants to be depicted in. Mm. And I think having those conversations Actually leads to much more intimate photographs because someone feels safe with you, right. um, and also doesn't feel used by you. Where it's like, oh, you just stuck around for you know a couple of weeks because you wanted to really get these specific moments that right. really should, uh, I, you know, the emotionally naked or physically naked side of me that maybe our personal relationship actually isn't in that place yet. And now Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm being, I'm using this person just because I can walk away. And like, I think that's the, the the biggest advice I can give is constantly giving check-ins with people that you're photographing and never expect anything from them. The Uh only expectations should be of you creating a safe space for them.
1: Right. I love that. Yeah, uh, great answer. Yeah. Great question. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Sarah. I just feel like I learned a lifetime of uh, yeah. <laughs> of experience right there. Awesome.
1: Okay, so now we have the tough question that we always say. <laughs> um, this is so. If you had to pick one camera for the rest of your life, you're, you're d- stranded on a desert island. You can only use one forever. What would it be, and why?
2: Would I have access to be able to if I went on an island, I don't know if I could yeah. like develop film, yeah, yeah. so just-
1: we we call it the magical desert island yeah. where there's yeah. a photo lab. Yeah. there's oh, a ba- you can get you can get batteries if you need batteries
2: <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Um, it's actually the easiest question for me, oh, good. Um, oh i I have almost exclusively for twenty years now. Um, shot with a Mamiya RZ. Oh, beautiful! That's like my my go to tank of a camera. You know, I I've tried picking up other cameras along the way. It's like I have a Mamiya Seven. It's like I have other cameras that I use. But like, if I am only going to use one camera, it's that camera always. Wow,
0: it's a legend too. A camera is. is,
2: It is. It's a workhorse. It is. It's just a camera that you know. It's also when uh, going back to just the beginning of when people ask, like, how does it look? I know exactly what I'm going to get with that camera before I get my film back. It's like I immediately can be like, okay, it's going to be the last frame on that roll because I know exactly what it looked like.
3: Yeah.
2: it's one of those cameras that like what you see is what you get. Yeah, and yeah. you know, with range finders, it's like, Oh, did I crop this right? And like, oh, it's yeah. just for me, there's something really visceral about that camera. And also that it like, <laughs> it literally can be like dropped on the ground a hundred times. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: I just, I, I told the story, I think last episode, I just required ARB and mm-hmm. I haven't been shooting it enough, but like seeing stuff that, you people, the, the the camera can you know create. is just like mm-hmm. man, I gotta get get go to the gym and like work out my arms so I can carry like, oh, that camera around. Uh,
2: I have never hand hauled it in my entire career. I'm oh. wow. one of those. Yeah, I I have really shaky hands. I'm yep. also very blind, and so mm-hmm. it's like I need the stability of that. Because <laughs> um, I actually the first film camera I ever had was. a a 645. Okay. Um, so okay. I kind of started out with medium format. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that was kind of like the next choice as I was like building up a comfortability of medium format. And I just have used it ever since.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. Good answer. Great camera. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now we have a part two. I don't know if you may or may not have an answer for this, but we is there any camera that you are currently like dreaming of white whale camera like something you're like man i would love
2: um i'm actually like meeting with a Uh friend next week (laughs) to (laughs) help me pick out a four by five so i'm i'm very much into going back to my roots it's been about it's actually it's been about 20 years since i've shot four by five yeah and even just looking at the body of work I just made, I'm like, man, I wish I shot this all in four by five. It wouldn't have been the same project, and I wouldn't have been able to do it in the amount of time that I did. Right. Um, but now, just like looking to the future, it's like I know how that makes my work look for yeah, me personally. Yeah. That right. it's just it's a it's on the horizon. Cool. But like, I Can't want wait. like a re- I want like a really nice one. So that's yeah. why I'm like, it's like a full investment, and so totally. I'm trying to trying to figure out what that is.
0: Mm.
1: Amazing, yeah! I I can't wait to see what you create with it.
0: And those two complement so well. Like the RZ, I feel like almost has like a four by five look to Mm -hmm. it. It really is close. See all the reason why I use (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) Makes sense.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, exciting! It's a great fake-out camera. It is. like yeah. a lot of uh, especially people that like don't don't have like the exact eye for it. They like when, especially when they see prints. Mm, um, yeah. like,
0: is this four by five? And I'm like,
1: is it? <laughs> is it? <laughs> you <tell> me. <laughs> 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 Maybe it is. But, yeah.
0: man, so good.
1: Well, Ryan, we can't thank you enough. Like I said before, I think everything we talked about in this episode needed to be said and heard, and we thank you. We think our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode, so thank you for taking the time to chat with us today.
2: Of course. It's been a pleasure.
1: Where can everybody check you out? Also, when's the book coming? Where can they pre-order? Give it all to uh...
2: us. Yeah, and my Instagram is just my name, Ryan Pfluger. My website hasn't been updated in about four years, um, but check (laughs) that out if you want. Um, And then, uh, yeah, Holding Space releases on November 8th, and you can pre-order it anywhere that you can pre-order a book. Amazing. And I would I would highly suggest pre-ordering it from your local bookstore. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. If you call your local bookstore and just ask them, they will pre-order it for you. Amazing. So that's
0: it. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Brian, thank you again. This has yeah. been phenomenal. And we will see everybody next time. Yay. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.
0: All right, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Chris and I would love to thank Ryan for coming on the show. Man, we are we are so excited about your book. Everything we talked about today, just like dear to our hearts. This was... This was an episode that needed to happen. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to hang out with us. We really appreciate it. We love what you're doing, and we are super excited to see what the future holds for your career. Guys, that's going to take us to Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash analog talk. For only a buck, you can get the show two days early. We also have our Patreon-only develop and hang nights and a bunch of other stuff there in the archives. If that sounds like something you're interested in, again, head over to patreon.com analog talk patreon is the best way to support the show all right guys so until next week we will see you with an all-new episode keep shooting and all that fun stuff and yeah we'll see you soon later